Money makes the world go round, so they say. But both are changing rapidly. Open banking, AI, digital wallets, cryptocurrencies are among the technological changes reshaping the financial landscape. While bringing incredible benefits, they've made grasping the concept of money far more slippery. With purchases increasingly made in ones and zeros rather than metal and paper, customers and retailers have many questions on how best to navigate this new age of payments. What are the benefits to me? How do I save or make money? And how can I avoid the pitfalls and the scams? Welcome to Business Reporters, the Future of Payments campaign, in which we answer these and many other questions. In this four-part podcast series, I'll be talking to James Neville, the CEO and founder of Citizen, one of the first companies licensed to provide payments and identity services using open banking. In the first episode, I want to find out whether we truly need all these shiny new technologies. Do they really benefit our lives? Or if these inventions are just well-marketed, but unnecessary and risky developments. A very warm welcome to you, James. Firstly, I want to give you a little bit of a quiz. No prizes, I'm afraid. But I want to get an idea of this changing landscape that I've just spoken about. So if you wouldn't mind, in 30 seconds, I want you to try to list for me as many recent innovations or changes in the payments industry as you can. Are you ready, James? Sure. Put me on the spot, why don't you? You're not, you're not going to miss something. Right, let's go. Okay. Ready? <laughs> go. Uh, PST2, open banking, crypto, digital wallets, NFTs, I guess you mentioned AI, uh, buy now, pay later, um, contactless, Apple Pay, Apple Pay Later, the myriad of buy now, pay later. There's about 40 of them in Australia alone. Um, oh God, you really put me on. Neo banks, strong customer authentication. Oh uh, God, what else is there? Um, God, I've actually forgotten all of them now. <laughs> OTP. I got there in the buzzer. The point of the exercise, as I said, I'm afraid no prizes, James. You did very well, but clearly many changes. I'm sure afterwards you'll be thinking, "Oh, I forgot this one." It's fine. Oh, for sure. The past five years have brought more than the previous fifty years of these changes. But I want to ask of all of the ones you've mentioned there, I mean, you don't have to go through them all, but there are so many. Are these truly useful? You know, and if they are, who are they useful for? Or are they just unnecessary innovations for the sake of being innovative? I don't think payments is a sector, or fintech generally is a sector that just looks to be shiny magpies it's all out to solve a problem and, and the problem is either dimensions of the merchant the person who's receiving money or, or the consumer themselves and and really it's all about this kind of seesaw of, of fraud and friction it's a bit of kind of cat and mouse game that you you're trying to make it easier for people to pay and then you've got the knock-on effect of the fraud rates tend to go up but you know in terms of you know all the stuff that's that's happened over the years i mean it's so much nicer to be able to walk into a store without a wallet and just pull your phone out, double tap the button on the side and go beep. Isn't it nice when you go through the underground without paying? I mean, even when you haven't, you don't even have an Oyster card on your Apple or, or Google wallets. And it's just fantastic to be able to walk around everywhere. And I, I'm a pretty forgetful person myself. I leave my wallet behind all the time. So, you know, the, the notion of having a, we used to call it the remote control of your life, having mm. your everything, your wallet in your pocket, but a digital wallet that, that does everything. It's fantastic. But, you know, there's places where it doesn't work. I went to a petrol station when we had the fuel crisis and I, I had to queue up for what felt like two days, but it was probably only about like 50 minutes. But got to the petrol pump, went to pay, and you had to put the card in the pump. 
I didn't have a card. I only had Apple Pay, but it hadn't called up yet. So, you know, sometimes there's this, you know, there's, there's people that kind of want to be on the forefront of stuff. And by the way, I don't, don't consider Apple Pay on the forefront anymore, all the way kind of down to, to, to people that are lagging. But we're, we're always trying to solve that problem of making it faster, easier, safer, more secure, smoother for, for people to pay and, and for merchants to, to get paid. So, you know, I don't think it's innovation for innovation's sake, but there, there's definitely always a an element of people that have to play catch up. And not everybody is, is sitting on the forefront of payments. Does it not feel like that we're always paying a little bit of catch up? You know, there was a time when contactless cards was the thing and then it was Apple Pay. You know, what is the latest thing? It always feels like as consumers, certainly, but as retailers, you know, we're, we're always one or two steps behind the latest innovation. Um, I mean, look, I remember all the way back to click-clack machines and this anecdote of being with my dad and a guy in a, a, a Moroccan market shouting Visa and, you know, putting one of those things and how long it took to make that transaction, right? Now look at when you make a transaction, it's, you know, it's seconds. It's one like snap of the finger. That is really healthy for all parties you know conversion and and actual acceptance are the two things that matter most to merchants and we we've seen over the years a bit of a kind of fight on on that kind of fraud v friction angle where you know 3d secure came along and you remember that for your listeners that don't know 3d secure is that password that pops up after you make a after you make a card transaction you're like oh that memorable phrase now I don't remember my memorable phrase. And then you, you've got to abandon the transaction. So that's what's been going on for, for years. But then when you get into the realms of using something like Apple Pay or a digital wallet, you've got to the point where you're authenticating that on the phone. So you don't need to remember that memorable word anymore. So actually that's reduced a whole heap of friction. But it still happens in the journey. We've got this thing called strong customer authentication that's become a kind of mandate in, in the UK in, in the last couple of months. And that means you'll see it sometimes. You're going to make a purchase online and you get a push notification to open your bank and authenticate a transaction, right? So you do a £200 purchase and you've got to pay with your card and then you've got to go to the bank and authorize it. So we're still playing catch up to a degree. I think you know, in terms of the innovations that have come along the way, Open banking being one, you know, open banking and PSD2 gets consumers kind of closer to the source of their funds. Effectively, you know, cards are just a proxy for the funds that you hold in a, a bank account. You know, the card is, is somewhat connected to it, but it's a pull transaction. So you give the card to somebody and they take those numbers and they move money from your account into a, into a merchant's account. You know, conversely, we've got open banking, which is um, a push transaction, right? So you don't need to separately authenticate in your bank anymore. You just do it all from the bank itself. And again, this is all about removing friction at every single point in the journey. So you just go closer to your to your source of funds. And ironically, we're going back to where we started 100 years ago, which is basically cash in your pocket, right? It's just mm. a digital representation of that and the less steps. But you know, along comes you know all, all kinds of other interesting things that solve problems at checkout, both for consumers and merchants. Buy now, pay later. That's probably the biggest one that we've mentioned earlier. But with all of these, and it does, it reduces friction, which as someone that talks about personal finances a lot, not great for people trying to save and budget, particularly in a cost of living crisis. But with less friction, I imagine also, and greater innovation comes greater risk with that speed. On, on buy now, pay later, I think there's an element of you know increasing um, increasing consumer debt and making it really easy to kind of finance purchases. And actually, recently, the corners of this world have to hand over that data to the credit reference agency. So everything that you've done on on Klarna, where you you've bought a handbag or jacket or a pair of sneakers, that's all going on your 
accumulated kind of credit record, which, you know, for most people at face value when they go to pay, don't realize that. They don't realize there's a credit imprint there. And it's really easy to stack that stuff up. I mean, buying a pay later solves a bigger problem for merchants because it allows them to increase their average basket value, right? Their ABV and, and, and ultimately their, their gross merchandise value over the course of the year because people buy more because they've only got to pay a third of it up front. Now, you, know, you do that three times in a month and then you've got that lagging effect for the next few months where you, you've got to pay it. So, you know, the cost of credit is not free. I think there's going to be a point that the cost of living crisis, people extending kind of consumer finance and consumer debt will come to a head. I mean, it did in, in the past with the last credit crunch in, in the late kind of noughties where we had lots of consumer finance people putting money on their, their credit cards at you know high APYs. And that's really, really not good news for anybody. But initiatives like our platform and open banking generally, because it gets people closer to real money, is probably actually better for the consumer because they can see what they've got in their account at that particular moment in in time, and of course crypto plays into the into the dimension somewhere as well. But that leads us into a very different world of the metaverse, etc., which probably mm. isn't kind of relevant for for today's consumer. Certainly not at checkout. Not yet. You mentioned crypto there. You know, we have spoken about the risks. We've spoken about whether it's innovation for innovation's sake. But I want to take what are of all the ones you mentioned in your fantastic 30-second roundup, 31 seconds, I think you had an extra cheeky one at the end there. Um, what would you put as your three most impactful developments? Um, you've got to put, in terms of impact for the future, as, as well as the now crypto first, uh, open banking and, and PSD2 seconds. Um, I'll probably buy now pay later as well. I'm not dismissive of the the changes that that's put in place for, for consumer financing. Why did you put crypto so high up? What does it give us? It gives us the ability to to transact across borders without existing schemes, kind of centralized schemes. I mean, you've got the Swifts and the, the SEPAs of this world, you know, Swift internationally, kind of SEPA across Europe and all the kind of various ACH schemes in different countries. But every country's got, it's got its own scheme, its own way of kind of moving money across institutions. It gets costly. We operate across Europe ourselves, and there's certain countries in the Mediterranean that, that charge money both sides of a transaction just for a, an intrabank transaction. So, if we're moving from you know, the equivalent of a Barclays to a Santander, and I'm not calling them out, two euros to the merchant and one euro to the consumer, no matter how uh, small the payment may be. Now, those types of fees are circumvented, they're not completely eradicated in crypto, but it gives people the ability to to hold uh, a real representation of, of their funds. And actually, people may take a kind of more dismissive view mm. of the, the crypto market generally. But there are well-accepted, stabler assets in the world. I mean, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, they've gone down massively from their, their highs last year. But Bitcoin's still perceived as a relative store of, of value. People are innovating with all kinds of interesting ways to provide utility on top of Ethereum, you know, whether that's a, a straight up Ethereum ERC20 token or, or, or something that's layer layer two. And then you know, there's, there's the more stable versions out there. So like Circle and Tether providing essentially a, a, a real collateralized version of, of, of a US dollar. So one one circle, one USDC equals equals one dollar. And that's collateralized in, in the same way that, you know, central banks currency is. And we're seeing a real shift towards central bank digital currencies as well. The mm. Bank of England has been exploring that for, for some time. 
just makes it easier to transmit money on decentralized networks than it does across multiple networks. We've seen a digital euro pop up from uh, the same people that provide USDC. It's only a matter of time before the Bank of England releases theirs. How this all shakes out, I don't think anyone anyone really knows, but there's so much opportunity in providing utility in, in crypto assets. And there's lots of really, really interesting projects going on in, in the world. And we'll see how the one shakes out as the metaverse and, and, and Web3, as, as people are calling it, expands into our real lives. You've said we, you don't know how this is going to pan out. No one knows how it's going to pan out. But I'm just curious where we are in this crypto journey. It's been an incredible ride. 2022 has been uh, interesting, shall we say? You know, we've heard centralized banks talking about it across the world, you know, China as well. I'm wondering, is that a good thing for the technology? What made crypto so attractive is the decentralized nature of it. Yeah, I mean, I think regulation helps in in most markets. It certainly helps to provide something that's safe and healthy for for consumers generally. Uh, I mean, we're regulated by by the FCA ourselves and that is you know in order to protect consumer funds and the way that we transact across across our networks now the sec's kind of made a, a, a very strong play on what crypto assets are what's a utility what's a, a security and just to kind of cover that off a security is something that is like an equity you know it's a representation of a, a kind of real world asset it is securitized right and in the same way they want to regulate securitized crypto or securitized tokens in in the same way that they they regulate an ipo or an equity kind of on the right and that makes a whole a whole heap of sense right because then you're not having people go out there and sell you know bob's widgets for 500 dollars when actually bob's widgets doesn't exist so you know there's a level of kind of scrutiny that provides you know validity to to these things now until that happens it's a kind of rock and hard place again because people are trying to circumvent the regulators and again it's that cat and mouse game of people are issuing things from from different regions so they don't have to apply to the us etc and then you do end up with you know a lot of scams and a lot of fraud in, in that place we we had a lot of initial coin offerings icos um a few years back i think that 2018 was kind of the, the peak of it and lots of projects that raised gazillions of, of of dollars out of out of thin air and then equally the project vanished into thin air you know, and what the regulators trying to do is play kind of catch up with, with with all of that. So when people invest in something that somebody's building, you know, there's there's some point of validity around it. All comes down to reputation at, at the end of the day. But there are a lot of people in the the crypto community, you know, over the last few years. There's been a lot of wealth creation, a lot of value mm-hmm. creation as well. But you know, the wealth creation came from a lot of very risky bets. I had someone that worked for us that was invest in this protocol invest in this token that's not my kind of investment strategy it went up a hundred times in a year that's typically not my risk profile but you know for some people they made a lot of money from it the whole notion of you know DeFi, decentralized finance is 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 fascinating but then of course we've had the collapse of Terra Luna, so one of the stable coins, um, unfortunately, it wasn't collateralized in the same way as, as some of the other parties out there. You know, particularly kind of you know, Circle and Tether collateralized with kind of real assets, real money. Where Terra Luna was very synthetic. Personally, I think it's a shame that it, it failed because you know it, it promised a, a very interesting way of issuing kind of digital currency. But again, it we'll see how this stuff shakes out. I think over time. The better stable projects, are, you know, the healthy projects, will, will, will rise to the top. And mm. there's a whole sector there that's that is going to to change the face of, of finance, but perhaps not in 12 months and more like in 10 years.
I guess if you can kind of shake off the headlines, then it's what's happening underneath. It's it's a new technology and you still believe in what it's, I suppose, what, what its fundamentals are and how it can develop. Yeah, I mean, every, everything's got, it's got a kind of cycle of, of life to it. And, you know, crypto's been through its its peaks and its its winters. It's in another winter right now. But, you know, there's but all of this that... is still very early days when you think oh, about sure. you know, how long yeah, yeah. physical money's been around, for example. This has got a, you know, exactly. a long way to go, you think. And so has, you know, so has open banking and, and PSD2. I mean, you know, the regulations got to put it in place for, for 20, 2019 or certainly on, on the payment initiation side of things. But the, the notion of account to account payments and moving money from your account to a merchant's account mm. directly through your bank is really, really novel for, for a lot of people. And, you know, we said this year, I think 10 million transactions in the UK is a, is a goal. That's still not a lot in the grand scheme of things when you consider how many straight faster payment transactions, i.e. a bank transfer, as, as you would call it, or a debit or credit card transaction goes through. You know, there's billions come trillions of, of those every every year. So it's still a real kind of fraction of the, of the total payment volume. If you look at how the Netherlands behaves, for example, with Ideal, which is, again, an account-to-account payment instrument that's been well embedded for, for many years and most merchants in, in Netherlands would rather accept that because of the lower fees than, than take a debit or, or credit card transaction so it's got a massive long way to go but different countries move quicker you know the west and certainly the UK's alliance to to, to the US has mm. always driven cards as you know first and foremost in the checkout flow there's all kinds of other weird and wonderful solutions out there you know Asia pack in the last five years has gone to I think 70% wallet based transactions and that's just because of the dominance of you know the super apps out there from um you know the 10 cent to the and financial kind of WeChat type type growth but completely different to Europe and, and America which is about 23 24 percent is digital wallet so open banking's got a long long way to go things like strong customer authentication again that bit where you've got to confirm i want to pay this person in your banking app is probably going to drive a lot of traffic to to open banking itself because why would you use a card when you've still got to go to your bank and authorize a transaction mm-hmm. just cut out the middleman along the way but it's again it's it's different in europe different countries have, have come along further the banking sector's less centralized or you know there's effectively nine primary big banks in the uk and a couple of leading uh neo banks in, in in germany you've got effectively kind of municipal versions of the same bank in in italy and spain you have casas and credit mutuals and you know really really small banks and actually it's not it's not like the uk where you know somebody has a natwest or a barclays or santander account and they're kind of the leading ones it's just there's there's about 20 or 30 that you have to cover all the various different technical maturity. So, you know, again, it's going to be a long journey for, for some of this, but it is better for people in those regions the more what, you reduce friction. Why is it so? Yeah, I want to go into more detail with open banking and why it's so important. Give us an example of how these changes have impacted our lives. Open banking just makes it simple for you to firstly share your kind of financial standing or your, your identity from a reputable organization, which is you know, fundamentally your your bank. And then to make that, that payment without having to pull your card out your pocket while the kids are shouting and the dinner's burning downstairs, you've always got your, your phone next to you. But it's making effectively what is the faster, fastest way of, of paying and getting your funds as a, as a merchant 
quicker for all parties. And again, you know, the, the card fraud rates are, are still through the roof in, in, in a lot of sectors. But the way we think about the world is actually that identity is becoming a, a bigger proxy for your financial transaction than the actual digital instrument itself. And everything is leading that way, which is connect you to the closest representation of your, your money and who you are as an individual digitally. You can't prove who you are with a card can't really prove where you are with anything else, but you can with your bank. And we're seeing a lot of change in, certainly in the UK, with open banking, they call it premium data, effectively. It's a it's a way to exchange more than just your, your name and address and financial history with, with, a, with a third party. So you've probably had a brokerage account, you know, an online account, whether it's, you know, a free trade or a trading 212 or an interactive investor, you know, those types of, you, you might play the stock market uh, casually. And, and all of those places where you put money on, on account, you have to provide some form of KYC and you know businesses have sprung up over the years to digitize that and they made a really really good job of it you know there's the Jimios and the Onfidos and you know all kinds of ways to scan your passport and your driving license to make sure that it's real and check the holographic seals on it but actually what what we're really doing is we're taking a physical piece of data that the government gives you which you can check at a border control that it look, well, looks like a really genuine document, lots of anti-fraud controls in it. And then we're t- taking a picture of it and that's the way you identify yourself online. You know, that is subject to, to abuse and it's not quite quite where we should be as a, a, as a forward-looking digital society. Open banking gets us closer to that by using the bank as a, as a proxy for your real world identity, which I think is really, really important, particularly in the, the days of fraud and, and, and trolling and, you know, looking at... Mm. Oh, that market is moving, but it was it was interesting in the in the UK that the government started the the Verify initiative, which was largely to do exactly that was to provide you a way to identify for your for your taxes and anything government related online. But it failed ultimately, which is you know a real shame because Estonia did a digital identity initiative a few years back and got it right straight off straight off the bat. India did it straight off the bat, but they went. They went really, really deep into biometrics and India went really deep into the actual kind of villages themselves and biometrically scanned people. Some societies might have a greater appetite for that. I know mm. the UK doesn't want an identity card and it, you know, we're quite, we refuse these things even though they're, they're enablers for us online. So there's always a bit of a trade-off there between you know privacy and, and kind of real-world identity online. But yeah, it's fascinating how that, we'll, we'll probably have another attempt at that as a government, as a society in the future. But if um, open banking enables that, then that's a really good way um, of kind of bridging the divide, particularly when you consent to any of the exchanges of identity yourself within your within your banking environment. Okay, so James, as you've described it, just before I let you go, the environment has spectacularly changed and we should be aware of those changes. What are your key takeaways then? How should an everyday citizen, a customer or a merchant carry on? So key takeaways for me, you know, I think merchants should be aware. Anyone that receives money, whether it's kind of online or, or physically in person, need to be aware that there's more options than just a, a credit and a, and a debit card. You know, there's lots of ways for for them to receive money which is cheaper to receive faster ultimately safer 
but people should also be you should be careful where you put your card details you shouldn't be shoving these things um online i mean i've seen people at i've seen people at restaurants kind of shout out kind of three digit codes off the back of their card to other people and you know and we no. have to be a bit careful about how that data is is shared online but um you know with open banking it's no longer necessary to, to use cards and i will ram that home because citizen is a uh, first and foremost an open uh, open banking solution but using using uh using these types of services we're not the only one out there to be able to pay without your cards is really 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 important but it's not just about um security i mean we are as a business looking at kind of digital rewards um there's a certain habituality of uh consumers to pay the way that they they've always paid and actually being able to reward people at a point of, of purchase gives gives people the ability to kind of tie together um, open banking and what's effectively um, a crypto asset as well. Using us with digital rewards is a nice easy way to tip your toe into into the deep waters that is is crypto without without risk. So, moving into the world of a kind of combatant or a, a competitor to you know the Amex, the the Air Miles, the the Nectar points needs to exist in this world as well because we feel that consumers aren't being rewarded fairly for for using different payment methods and we're, and we're here to change that. James, thank you so much. In the next episode, rather than focusing on the technology, we'll be talking about people, specifically customers and their changing behaviour.